0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, Chapter 4 of Hebrews, I'm going to go ahead and just read through it with us, and then we'll, we'll back up and we'll go through it. <clears throat> chapter 4, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest... Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful And sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. (laughs) Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So chapter 4 expands on a theme that was introduced to us in chapter 3. And the chapter 3 introduced to us the theme of God's rest. And uh, the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 4 is going to give us four uh, points of uh, application, four things that we can apply to our own lives in order to experience that rest. So going back up to verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Um, So like I said, this is a continuation of From chapter 3. Now remember, uh, the letter to the Hebrews is just that it's a letter to Hebrew Christians. And in chapter 3, Jesus told us or told them that Jesus is better than Moses. And that would have been very pertinent or very, uh, uh, you know, it would have really stuck with the Hebrew Christians because Moses was very revered to the Jews. He was the apostle or sent one of God uh, to deliver the Jews from slavery in Egypt and to lead them into the promised land of Canaan, which in chapter 3 was referred to as God's rest. Now Moses, as we know from reading in Exodus and Numbers, he was incapable of leading the children of Israel in the promised land. And that first generation of freed slaves from Egypt, that first generation of the children of Israel, they were unable to enter the promised land. And it's very interesting if you understand why they were not allowed to enter the promised land. It wasn't because of their lack of spirituality, believe it or not. It also wasn't because of their lack of purity that they weren't unable to enter the land, nor because of their lack of devotion, and not because of their lack of service or goodness or efforts, The reason they were unable to enter the promised land was because of one thing, their unbelief. That's it, just their unbelief. Now, in chapter 3, we know that that promised rest referred to in chapter 3 was for the children of Israel, again, was going into the promised land, right? They had wandered through the wilderness. They came to the banks of the Jordan River. They were across the Jordan River and enter into Canaan, into the land that God had promised them. And it was a land flowing with milk and honey, it was full of God's blessings. So that was the illustration that the writer used in chapter 3 to, to teach uh, the Hebrews and to teach you and I. Well, what about us? What is that illustration a picture of for you and I, God's rest? Is Canaan a picture of heaven? Now, if you read, listen to a lot of old spiritual songs, a lot of times they talk about the promised land in reference to heaven. And, of course, heaven is the promised land. Heaven is our eternal rest, of course. But to be frank, I don't think Canaan is a picture of heaven. Why? Well, like I mentioned last week, Canaan, when they entered into Canaan, they had battles to wage. I mean, there were, there were, there were enemy in that land that they had, to, they had to fight with. There were giants in the land that they had to defeat. There was enemy territory that they needed to take. And I don't know about you, but I hope when I get to heaven that there's not enemies in heaven or battles to fight or enemy territory to take over. I hope that that's all done. In fact, it will be all done because there won't be any sin in heaven. There won't be any enemies in heaven. So I don't think Canaan is a picture of heaven. Now, heaven, of course, is your and my ultimate rest. But I think for you and I, the rest that's pictured here, that's referred to here, is the believer's victorious life in Christ, that you and I live here and now, where you and I are experiencing God's blessings in our life, where you and I are conquering the giants that we face in our lives. And we face giants, don't we? There's things that come that are just, they're mountains to us and they seem so overwhelming. That's like facing Goliath. Well, there are things that God wants us to face in our life. There are uh, areas or territory that the enemy once held in our hearts, that we're to take back from the enemy. We're to war, uh, wage spiritual warfare, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So the question then, now at least the question I have, is how can Canaan for the Jews, going into the promised land, fighting those battles, and the victorious life for you and I as a believer where we're taking back enemy territory, where we're facing giants, where we're warging warfare, warfare how can that be equated with rest? Because to me... You know, that sounds like work, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, to me, it sounds like work, not rest. Well, for the Jews entering the promised land, what did God tell them? God said, hey, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to drive out the enemies from before you. You're going to be victorious. One of you is going to chase 10. 10 of you is going to chase a 1,000. God had promised to bless them. God had promised to give them the land. It was their land to take. They just need to step in faith and cross the river, and enter into the promised land. They needed to act on their belief by going forward. For you and I, as believers, right? God has promised that He will fight our battles. He's going to drive out our enemies, and He will give us the victory. All that we have to do is believe Him, and then act on that faith by walking in faith, taking those steps, And so verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So this is the first application. God's promise of rest remains unchanged for you and I, but you and I need to fear what? Fear to not grow complacent and not pursue God's rest. Not To fear to distrust God's promises. You know, if you doubt that God's can give you victory in your life, or if you think you're not spiritual enough, or you need to do more to earn God's love, be careful. This is what the writer's saying: be careful, because you may miss the blessings of God's promise. Because it's not based on you; it's based on Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've known many believers, and it's heartbreaking to see believers who they've been they've been delivered from slavery to sin. They've 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 left. Egypt, you know, the world, they've left that. And, but they've never entered into the promised land. They're just wandering around in the wilderness. You know, they're continuing to stumble over the same issues over and over and over again. They're never experiencing victory. They never seem to grow past a certain point in their lives. Have you ever had a believer like that? Someone that you've been, you know, maybe it's a family member or a friend or someone that you know and you're, you're just, it's so heartbreaking because you want them to grow, you want to see their lives change and they keep going back and back and back. They're like running around in circles. They're like the Jews wandering around in the Promised Land or in the wilderness. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is identified in verse 2. It says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. See, God had told the children of Israel that he would drive out the inhabitants of the land uh, before them as they went forward. They had heard that. God had told them that. Uh, But the promise didn't profit, profit them. Why? Because they didn't mix hearing it with faith. Another Bible translation says, the word of hearing did not profit them because it was not united by faith with them. Let me give you an illustration of this. In uh, Romans chapter 1.16, Paul wrote this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That message of salvation, the message of the gospel, man, it is powerful to save everyone. There's no one who can't be saved by the message of the gospel. Anyone who hears it can be saved, but it only saves those who believe it. Now, you may have heard all of the promises of God in the Bible for you. In fact, maybe, you know, we're, we have our house on the market. We're trying to, we're trying to downsize. And, and so one of the things that you have to do, well, you don't have to, but if you want to make your house attractive for selling, is you get rid of all the personal stuff, you know, the photographs, the plaques. You kind of make it a little simpler, make it clean so the house looks bigger. We've done that. It's been hard because, you know, we've got a lot of pictures and mementos and stuff. And we had fridge magnets. You know, I'm sure some of you have them too. Well, maybe your fridge has become magnetic because you've got so many fridge magnets on it. You know, with all those promise verses of God that we love to put on, the, on, our, on our fridges and things. Uh, maybe you're driving a car here that's so rusty, the only thing that's holding it together is the bumper stickers, right? Everything's, It, it would fall apart if it wasn't for the bumper stickers with God's promises quoted on it. I even saw uh, yesterday, I was just kind of looking around, and I saw that there's a blog that you can subscribe to that sends you a promise verse each year, each day of the year you got 365 promises sent to you in an email uh, if you want to subscribe to this blog. Well, you know what? None of those things are going to profit you if you don't believe them. None of them. It's one thing to hear them, but it's another thing to believe them. And so in verse 3, he says, For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not because, enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today. After such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. So we can learn three things here about God's rest. First of all, the rest is available for you and I today. God's rest is available for us today. That entire first generation of former Hebrew slaves, they died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. You know the story. Have you been to Sunday school? You you know that story. Have you read the book? That entire generation wandered the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off. They didn't enter the promised land because of disobedience. However, the next generation, their children entered the promised land. Joshua, the son of Nun, led them into the promised land to take possession of it. And what the writer is saying here is if God's promised rest only applied to the children of Israel in Joshua's day, then there would have been no reason for David to write in Psalm uh, 95, which is what he's quoting here, and for David to say, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think this is really an important point. Um, there were a number of years ago, <clears throat> well, not a number, but a few years ago, uh, there was a, a guy who was part of our fellowship, and I was discipling him. And he had just graduated from Bible college. Don't get freaked out, but he had just bi- <laughs> graduated from Bible college. And, uh, and so I was, he was here as part of our fellowship, and, and uh, I was discipling him. And he told me once, he said he was struggling with people who were applying verses like Zechariah six. I don't know if you're familiar with Zechariah 4.6, but it says this, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. His problem with this verse was that people were taking that verse and they were applying it to their own circumstances. And he says, I don't understand that. I'm, I'm having a problem with that because it was written to Zerubbabel. It wasn't written to anyone in our generation And so it really stumbled him. And actually, shortly afterwards, he stopped being discipled, and soon after that, he just left the fellowship. Well, Paul talks about the children of Israel in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10. He starts talking about them. And in verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom, whom the ends of the age have come. Those things, those stories, they're not just stories. They're written for you and I to learn from and to apply in our own lives. In 2 Timothy 3.16, which I love what Kenny said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, uh, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired. It's all profitable. Now, obviously, if some girl takes Gabriel's announcement in the book of Matthew about the birth of Jesus and then thinks, hey, I can apply it to my life. I'm going to have a, a, a virgin birth. I mean, we know that there's only one virgin birth. There only will be one, and it was Jesus Christ, right? So that's, I mean, that's kind of obviously you don't apply that. But here's the thing that I, that I was trying to explain to this young man is scriptures are describing a principle that God has repeated throughout scriptures. I think it is there for us to take, to take and apply it to our own lives. So I think it's perfectly fine to take that verse, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, and apply it in our own lives. Why? Even though it was written to Zerubbabel. Well, because God operates that way. We see it throughout the Bible, right? You remember with David, uh, with Gideon, uh, with the children of Israel. I mean, you can go through all the Bible and, and see how God doesn't work with man's intellect. He doesn't work with man's power. He does things by His Spirit. Because he's the one that gets the glory. And so that verse, it's speaking of a principle. And so we can apply that to our own lives. And so when David says, today, if you will not, you know, don't harden your hearts, it's written to you and I today as well. It's not just written to the children of Israel. And that's what the writer is trying to get across, is that that rest is available for you and I today. The second thing we can learn about God's rest from those verses is that we must enter into it if we want to live fruitful lives for the kingdom. God is urging the Hebrew readers and you and I to enter today and He is warning us not to disobey. And You might go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you said it was a matter of faith, just a matter of believing. Now you're talking about obedience and disobedience. But you see, unbelief is disobedience. And in and of itself it is. And unbelief will lead to further acts of disobedience. You know, it's interesting. Your and my faith, or lack of it, determines our actions. I mean, we may say we profess to believe something, but you know what? What we profess and what we do, if they don't match up, then it's like, do you really believe it? If you didn't believe that these chairs that you're sitting in today would support your weight, I guarantee you you wouldn't be sitting down right now. You'd be standing next to it because you, man, if I sit on it, it's going to collapse. But you believe that those chairs are going to support your weight, and so you've all sat down and, and, thankfully, they have. You know, your faith determines your actions. What you and I truly believe is shown how in how you and I live. The third thing we can learn about God's rest is that it is patterned after God's seventh day of rest in Genesis 2. Or God created uh, the world in six days. Uh, the work of creation was completed on day six, and he rested on day seven. And our rest is patterned after God's rest, ceasing from labor. And what it's referring to is ceasing from trying to earn our own righteousness through works, trying to accomplish God's work in our own strength. Man, that's the rest that you and I have as believers. We don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to earn God's love. You don't have to do something to prove God that you're worthy of salvation. He already loves you. He has come and He's saved you where you are in the condition that you were in. He's come to you and He's delivered you. You know, serving the king is never boring and it certainly isn't mundane. I can tell you that from experience. If you offer your life to Jesus... Well, he'll take it, and he will take you places, man. You've never ever dreamed you would go. I remember the time I mean, the Lord kind of laid on my heart to become a pastor, and at that point, I said, "Man, I just I couldn't have never imagined in a million years, you know, ten years before that that I would have been a pastor, and yet the Lord brought me to this place." You'll also be busy. You will be very busy as you offer yourself to the Lord. He'll He'll take you. He'll make use of you. He'll give you opportunities to serve Him in very many different ways. But the thing is, it's still rest. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew 11, 29, 30, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Man, when it's the Lord's burden, it's easy. When it's our burden. When it's our strife, it can get tough. You can burn out pretty easily. But when you just submit it to the Lord, it's easy. So the difference is we're no longer working to earn our righteousness. Why? Because Jesus finished that work on the cross, right? It was all done on the cross at Calvary. And so the second application for us this morning is in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we uh, we must give an account. So what's the next application? Hey, let's be diligent to enter that rest. What does it mean to be diligent? It means to hasten, to be eager, to be alert. Well, how how do we do that? By using God's Word. Notice, I didn't say by reading God's Word, but to use it. I mean, reading it is definitely part of it. You have to read God's Word to know what it says. But it's one thing to read God's Word and know what it says, and another thing to read God's Word, to know what it says, to believe it, and then to apply it in your own life. We need to be doers of the word and not hearers only because hearers only deceive themselves. And God's word is living. It's not some musty old collection of stories, uh, you know, and, and advice and nice things to read, nice things to put on your fridge magnets and stuff. God's word is alive. And God's word is powerful. You know, some people think that a program has the power to change you. And I got news for you. A program does not have the power to change you. A person doesn't have the power to change. You might think, if I just find the right preacher, preaches the right message, man, that's going to change me. I I have no power to change you. Not that I'm a great preacher, but I have no power to change you. A person does not have the power to change you. A thing does not have the power to change you. You know, a lot of times we think, if I just get that one thing, man, my life will be good. If I just get that promotion, if I just get that pay raise, or if I just get that, that, that new car, man, if I could just get that new car, the old clunker, I can park it, and man... That's not going to change you. It doesn't have the power to change you. What has the power to change you? God's Word. And I've seen it repeated over and over again in people's lives. It's when people read it, when they believe it, and when they apply it, man, then God starts changing them by His Word. And God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't know about you, but when I read God's Word, man, it cuts through any kind of excuses I have. Anything that I say I believe, the Word of God shows me, do I really believe it? It it reveals what's in my heart. It reveals, it separates out from what we say, from what is in our hearts. Even what we think we feel, it separates it out. God's Word reveals those things. It's like a mirror. It shows us who we really, truly are. And he says, And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, I was reading that last night. Something that, you know, that's what I love about the Word of God. It's living. And you can read verses, scriptures one time, read it again, and, and the Holy Spirit will bring something else out to your attention. Well, I have never noticed this before, to be honest with you. But if you read those two verses talking about the Word of God being living and active and sharper than your two-edged sword. And then reading the next verse that says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know what jumped out at me? Man, we live in Rochester, the land of Mayo Clinic. And if you're in the medical field, doesn't that sound like surgery? Someone who's, you know, they've been sliced open, they've been pulled, you know, their ribs or whatever has been severed, and they're just laid open. And you can see right down into their internal organs. I don't we have dessert after or snacks after, so <laughs> But seriously, that's what it looks like. It sounds like a surgery. And a surgeon takes a very, very sharp knife. they cut through whatever they need to cut through to get to the point to the place in the body that needs to either be removed or repaired. And in this case, the Holy Spirit is the surgeon. And the word of God is his scalpel. So how do you and I apply this? How do we be diligent to enter into that rest? And then he mentions reading the Word, using the Word of God. How do I apply this? Well, I want to encourage you, start reading your Bible. Don't just read it on Sunday. Start reading it. Meditate on God's Word. Let it reveal your attitudes and your heart. And then ask the surgeon, the Holy Spirit, to remove or to change those areas in your life that He reveals to you. And as you believe God and His Word, I guarantee your actions will change in accordance to it. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen people chase programs, chasing things, chasing people, and their lives have not changed. But I have seen people that have got into the Word of God and let the Word of God get into them, and there's, you start seeing change. I've, I, I, well, I could see here all afternoon. I could share testimonies of people that I've been ministering to that I've seen God's Word transform. Because God's word is powerful, and it's the only thing that can change your life. Well, now the writer of Hebrews, we're getting towards the end of chapter 4, and now the writer of Hebrews is going to introduce another concept that he's going to expand on in chapter 5. And we're not going to get into chapter 5 this morning. But what is that theme that he's going to introduce now, that he's going to expand on in chapter 5? Remember, the entire book of Hebrews is basically, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the old, the prophets of old. Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, Jesus is better than angels. And now he's going to get to this point and he's going to talk about it in chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 9. It's kind of one of the major themes of uh, the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better than the Levitical high priesthood. He's certainly better than the Levitical high priest. And so, verse 14, he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, Jesus has passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Well, that means that Jesus ascended into heaven, and we know from the scriptures that he is sitting at the right hand of God right now. And right now, he is performing the function of your and my great high priest in heaven. And notice that the writer says, Jesus, which is his earthly name, right? Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, and then they tie in, he ties in his deity. So it's Jesus, his earthly name, the Son of God, deity, and he's brought that tied that together. So the third application for us this morning says, "Let us hold fast our confession." What is our confession? It's what you and I believe. Let's hold fast to what we believe. You know, you, you read God's word. God reveals a promise to you. You say, you know what? I, I I believe you, Lord, and you and you and you start living according to. it. You start walking according to what you believe, what you've read in the scriptures. Don't let go of that. Cling to that belief. Cling tenaciously. In fact, that word "hold fast" means let us keep on holding fast. It's it's an active holding fast. It's not like yeah, I believed it now, but you know things have changed. No, hang on to those things. Cling to it tenaciously. Tenaciously, excuse me. That takes effort, that takes alertness, that takes determination, and so those things that you and I read in God's word, man, hang on to them. Don't let go of them. Uh, don't be one who used to believe but now doesn't. And I've come across Christians like that. Yeah, I used to, I used to, you know, I used to really stand on. That. I don't believe that anymore. It's it's heartbreaking when you hear that. So we're to grow in obedience to God's word. You know, and there's some Christians, and, and like I said, it's heartbreaking to a view, but their fire for the Lord, now it's just barely visible in their lives. I mean, I mean, I don't question their salvation, but the, the, just the flame is gone. It's just like they're just a glowing ember, and it's like they're just about ready to go out. It's like a candle that's almost reached the end of its wick. The Word of God no longer excites them. Man, the Word of God no longer challenges them. And they've given up holding on to these truths. that God God was doing a work in their heart, now they've, they've just kind of let go. They haven't been diligent. Let us keep holding on fast to what we believe. Verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that the writer has included this in here. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, let's fear that we don't, you know, don't miss out on God's blessings in our life by not walking in faith, by not walking in obedience. You know, let, let, let's let be diligent to, to, to hang on to those things. Let, let's be diligent. You know, he's giving us all these, all these things for let us to do. But what if you're one person who has failed? What if you're a person, you know, maybe maybe this morning I've been describing your life and your fire is not as hot as it used to be for the Lord. Maybe, you know, you, you, you've not trusted God in some area in your life and, and, and the Holy Spirit's revealed that to you. Maybe you fail to act on something that He's laid on your heart and you just failed to do it. You fail to take that step of faith. And you, and you go, man, uh, it's, I've blown it. Your fire's grown cold. Maybe you've let go and barely holding on to what you believe anymore. I love what the writer says here. Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses, our struggles, and our failures. That word sympathize means to suffer along with. Because Jesus suffered the same temptations you and I suffered. I, it, that's mind-boggling. You mean Jesus actually struggled the same way I struggled? Yes. He did. The same temptations. He was tempted in all points, as the Bible says, as you and I were, yet without sin. And so that final application this morning, even if you failed, even if you you go, you know what, yeah, I'm on the negative side of that application this morning. Hey, let's come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help uh, that we attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, this applies not only in the moment of weakness and temptation, although when you're in a moment of weakness, when you're going through a trial, when you are being tempted, you and I can cry out to Jesus for help in that specific time. In fact, and Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. If you cry out to the Lord in your tent, He will give you a way out. But it's not only when you and I are in that time of temptation. We can boldly approach the throne anytime. That's a privilege you and I have. If you were a Hebrew before the New Covenant, if you were a Hebrew under the Old Covenant, You couldn't just approach the throne of grace boldly. Only the high priest could go in once a year, and the writer Hebrews will get into this later. He could only go in one one time a year. You and I, we've been blessed so much we can go in any time. We can approach God, a holy God, even though we're sinners. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we can go up to God's throne. Lord God, I've failed. Please help me in this. We can even go after we've failed. Why? Because God's throne is a throne of grace. It's not a throne we can only approach when we have our act together. You know, sometimes we think that. I can only come to God as long as I've gotten, I'm have i not dealing with any sin in my life. You can come to the throne of God even after you've miserably failed because God's throne is a, gro- a throne of grace. And it's also a throne of mercy, not judgment. You know, today, in this day and age, boy, I tell you, you read about it, there are a lot of people protesting, Right? out there for different reasons, but one of the biggest things, they want justice. People, everybody wants justice. And so often, you and I, man, we want justice when we've been wronged. Man, I am so glad God doesn't give me the justice that my sin deserves. But that's what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you and I deserve. And so I want to encourage you to boldly approach the throne anytime, even after you've failed. You know, the thing is, the enemy lies to us. Remember Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? What was their, What did they do? They went and they hid from God. They didn't want to, because they were so ashamed of themselves. They were, they were exposed in their sinfulness. They knew they were naked. They didn't want to be in fellowship with God, so they hid. God was pursuing them, but they hid. And when you and I sin, when we fail, that's one of the things that we do. The last thing we want to do is approach a holy God. So what do we do? We don't pray. We, we, if if we're, we're practicing sin, man, we, we stay away from fellowship because we don't. it's convicting to be around other believers that are on fire for the Lord, and I'm not. Our inclination is to hide from the presence of the Lord because of our guilt and our shame. But I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus invites you and I to approach His throne boldly. That's the last application. Why? Because He loves you, because He died for you, and He lived for you. And he wants you and I to enter into that rest. And actually it's disobedience by not entering into that rest, by trying to do things on our own. It's actually sin. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if if you're if that's describing a man, repent of that. And turn from that and turn to the Lord Jesus because he's got nothing but grace and mercy for you and I this morning. Why don't you stand up? Let's go.